Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all of those places. And then I also have a blog that I started writing in. It's almost three years now. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is December 15th, 2021, and I'm going to call yet another audible on what I said I was going to talk about at the end of the last episode. And we're in the midst of talking about this constitutional makeover and the draft constitutions that have been released. And today is going to be, I think, a, a significant day, at least symbolically. Because the Board of Governors, the association-wide governing body for the NCAA, is going to vote today on whether to adopt this new constitution as revised on December 7th. And I don't think there will be any surprises there. I'm going to be paying attention today, and I'll probably do an episode tomorrow or the day after if anything important comes up and whether there's any discussion around the adoption of the new constitution that raises any questions. But assuming it's just a pro forma unanimous vote... <laughs> All the Board of Governors votes on these important issues seem to be unanimous, which I find interesting. But assuming that the Board of Governors adopts this constitution, it will be put to the full membership in the January 2022 meeting for ratification. And then things are really going to get interesting. And I'm going to continue on with my discussion about this constitution committee, but most importantly, what's going to happen with this transformation committee at the Division One level and how important that committee is and how it really is going to be shaping the future of college sports, at least at the regulatory level, but the regulation of college sports and the economic side of college sports are inextricably linked. So when the Power Five gets into the driver's seat here, and I think that's what's going to happen, I think we're going to start to see some of these things that have been open questions start to be answered, and we're going to get back into that. But something happened last Friday on December 10th, and it was a Friday afternoon news dump, and it came from the NCAA, and it was an opinion from the NCAA Committee on Infractions in the Auburn case, and Auburn was one of the many schools that was swept into this basketball scandal that was the product of an FBI investigation that began really in 2015, and the FBI and the Justice Department were doing sting operations, and they were wiring people up and going cloak and dagger to tease out some really Mickey Mouse transactions that nobody participating in those transactions thought were a violation of federal criminal law. These were low-level, kind of tank-top, not white-collar. These were tank-top transactions. But the cloak and dagger aspect of those uh, transactions was because the actors, these assistant coaches, the agent advisors, and all the people and the shoe company people, all, all these people who were participating, they were afraid of being caught by the NCAA. They weren't worried about the FBI or the Justice Department or federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. They were hiding from the real police state in college sports, and that is the NCAA. And I talked at length about that whole scenario in my series on the NC State infractions and enforcement case. And those were episodes 53 to 63. It's really a wide-ranging discussion about the history of the infractions and enforcement process and then how it has evolved and what it is likely to look like on the backside of this constitutional makeover. And one of the reasons I did that series on NC State and on infractions and enforcement was that when Bob Gates first announced the formation of this Constitution Committee, he was speaking in terms of aligning the NCAA's responsibilities with its authorities. And that boils down to what are the values and the principles that the NCAA is going to uh, adopt and then stand behind or not stand behind? And then how are they going to enforce the principles that they do choose to stand behind? And all of that runs through enforcement. And that debate is going on right now 
through this Constitution Committee, and now that the infractions and enforcement process is going to run through the divisions, not the NCAA National Office, the Power Five, as a practical matter, are going to have to decide what authorities they want, what responsibilities they want, and how they are going to reconcile those two sides of the regulatory model through enforceable standards and rules. So far, since the 1950s, the only enforceable rules and regulations that the NCAA has actually stood by through legislation relate to fixing the cost of labor and regulating the labor pool through amateurism-based compensation limits, and then managing the talent acquisition market, which is the most important component of this entire business model at a practical level. And when you look at the NCAA Division I manual and it's 451 pages and you see that so much of it is devoted to those two things, you really begin to see how the NCAA's reliance on all these fluffy constitutional principles has been an illusion all along. And when the NCAA is called upon in litigation to stand behind those fluffy constitutional provisions like gender equity and trying to prevent gender bias and like academic integrity and like protecting the physical and mental well-being of student-athletes, the NCAA responds by saying, we owe you nothing. And they've been very successful in that legal strategy. In fact, the athletes are not members of the NCAA, and that's been the primary legal argument. You can't tell us that we have a legal obligation to you or a fiduciary obligation to you or a quasi-contractual obligation to you because we have no connection to you. We have no re relationship with you. And I don't think that's going to change under this constitutional makeover and the shift in governance and regulatory authority from the NCAA National Office to the Power Five. So in that sense, looking at the values that the NCAA and Power Five espouse and then whether or not they can enforce those values at the regulatory level, this Auburn decision was really important. And it's interesting, too, because of the timing of this decision. So what I want to do is talk about these basketball-related cases at a kind of a bigger picture level and at a categorical level, because there are really two types of cases that came out of that quote-unquote scandal. I'm going to use the word scandal because that's what everybody else uses, but I don't think it's scandalous to engage in conduct that in any other setting in the United States of America would not only be legal, but in many cases desirable. That's true with a lot of these transactions and the motives of the transactions here, but they get all covered up in this seedy underworld of grassroots basketball. And it is a dirty business, but it's a dirty business in large part because of these amateurism-based compensation limits and the NCAA infractions and enforcement police state. So I want to do a little bit of setup here, and then I want to get to this Auburn decision because one of the things that's really interesting to me is why this decision even came out because it is applying principles that may be mooted by this constitutional makeover. I think will be mooted, and some of the penalties that are in play in these cases that are continuing to come out of the Committee on Infractions may not exist in eight months. So why? is the NCAA and the national office putting out decisions? Why don't they just put the brakes on this and say, wait a minute, this is, we're looking at a fundamental overhaul in the infractions and enforcement process, and we're going to do no further harm. <laughs> we're not going to punish any more assistant coaches or any more athletes. And those are the two categories of stakeholders who wind up being the fall guys in, in this charade, this enforcement and infractions charade. So let's just put the brakes on this. And we'll revisit some of these cases once we have this new constitution in place and we have the infractions and enforcement apparatus in place at the Division I level. And let's see what that looks like. Because remember, under this new constitution, there are several guiding principles for the new infractions and enforcement process that are fundamentally inconsistent with the way the old process is operated. And they all relate to fairness, equity, efficiency, and uh, proportionality 
proportionality. And there is, I think, a, a growing sense among the decision makers. And I know Greg Sankey has voiced this explicitly in his criticisms of the NCAA infractions and enforcement process. And then you have this federal law that's uh, been proposed through the House through a representative from Tennessee called the NCAA Accountability Act, which would basically put the NCAA's infractions and enforcement process under federal receivership through the Justice Department. So why are you putting out decisions right now? And that's a good question. I think that there is an effort here that ties into this behind-the-scenes tensions between the National Office Enforcement staff and then the takeover by the Power Five of the infractions and enforcement process. And that I think is playing out in a way, as I've discussed in prior episodes, that really has the power five in the driver's seat. And the tone of this Auburn decision is fundamentally different. It's a much more kinder, gentler approach to how they frame the issues, how they talk about the case history and the factual history. And the central figure in that case was former Auburn assistant coach Chuck Person, who I'm going to talk quite a bit about when I get to the actual decision itself. But Instead of portraying person as the Duke of Darkness and this black hat bad actor, and that's the way they frame all of these cases. And that was the way that the case was framed by federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York at the sentencing phase. And a person chose to plead guilty. He didn't put the government through the expense of a full trial. He agreed to uh, a deal, but there was a bit of a disagreement about the sentencing. And at that hearing, the, the prosecutors characterized person as being motivated by insatiable greed. And the district court judge that presided over that case, Loretta Preska, she just slapped that down and she heard something much different in in person and in the people that supported him and in the absurdity of the prosecution of this case in the first place and she described him as charitable to a fault and that is true everybody who knows chuck person knows that he has a big heart and he spent all of his money almost all of his nba money he had a, he was one of auburn's best players in the history of the program well respected loved in in auburn circles and he's an alabama guy he's from alabama and he had a nice nba career and he made a bunch of money but like many athletes Athletes who uh, come into to money like that, and this is not an uncommon story, and it cuts across all racial and social demographics. But that money just, you know, it doesn't stick around, and all of a sudden these guys are broke. But the reason that Chuck Person was broke, the reason he was in a, a position where he could be compromised, at least by NCAA rules and logic, was that he was giving his money away to help other people. And Judge Preska saw that. And that's why on the backside of this indefensible investigation and prosecution, she said, look, enough is enough. And this man's been through enough. He's a good person. He is uh, generous to a fault. That's what she said. Chuck Person was generous to a fault. And he should not go to jail. So she sentenced him to 200 hours of community service and then two years of probation. But on the backside of that, Chuck Person's career as a basketball coach was over. And the NCAA, even though it characterized Person in a much different way than it has characterized prior bad actors, he still wound up with a, basically the NCAA Scarlet C and C for cheater. He has the Scarlet C on his forehead and nobody's going to hire him now. And I'll talk more about how that happens procedurally through the NCAA penalty process. But why now with this decision and why the sudden change in tone? and how they look at the people who they have spent decades portraying as the dukes of darkness in the NCAA system. These cheaters, these people who have committed crimes against amateurism and the student athlete and the collegiate model and all this happy malarkey. Where is that now? That's not really in this Auburn decision. And I think that that is an important change in tone. In my view, what the NCAA infractions and enforcement people are doing in this Committee on Infractions, the old system, this system that's been the subject of criticism and ridicule really going back to the 1950s and Walter Byers. But what these people are doing is just trying to put a new face 
on their administrative tactics. And I think it's too little too late. I don't think that this is going to change in any way what the Power Five winds up doing with its new authorities to create its own infractions and enforcement process. But these people are fighting for their bureaucratic lives. And I've said all along that a big part of this whole makeover on the backside of all the failures of the NCAA through Mark Emmert's failed leadership when the Senate in federal litigation and then with the name, image, and likeness debacle, that on the backside of that, in the NCAA's quest for relevance, and that was Bob Gates' initial characterization of, of how he saw things with the NCAA national office, that they were in a battle for relevance because on the backside of all these attempts to force themselves into the iron throne of college sports regulation, they got turned away, at least temporarily. They're in a position of weakness that they've never been in. So now these national office employees, some of whom are making high six-figure salaries, they're fighting for their bureaucratic life. And I think that one of the things that will reveal itself ultimately is the extent of that wrangling behind the scenes and who the winners and losers are going to be in preserving their their gravy train behind the NCAA administrative veil. And we'll, we'll know, we'll know soon who survived and who didn't. So let me real quick set the table here for a discussion of this Auburn decision. And in this basketball scandal, you now have, I think, a total of 12 schools that were implicated either directly through prosecutorial action or indirectly by being named or referred to in the criminal cases that were actually prosecuted. And the most commonly represented defendant class in all these transactions were assistant basketball coaches. And all of them are African-American, and so are all of the athletes that get embroiled in these scandals. And one of the reasons that coaches like Chuck Person have value is that they have relationships in the African-American community. They can go with credibility and authority into that community and speak to the athletes and speak to their parents and speak to their handlers. A lot of these star athletes have somebody that's kind of a gatekeeper to the family. And that was true in the NC State case with this Sean Farmer guy who was supposed to be a quote-unquote personal trainer, but he was really a gatekeeper for Dennis Smith Jr. And, and his family. That dynamic exists. And you need somebody in that system who knows the culture, who knows these people, who has relationships. And everybody in the big-time college sports marketplace, high-level football, high-level men's basketball, know that national championships are won in large part in the talent acquisition market. And in basketball, more than any other sport, I think, because of the social and cultural importance and currency that it has in the African-American community, the relationships between those who are acquiring the talent and those who are supplying the talent are so important. And the head coach at Auburn, Bruce Pearl, who is white, benefits enormously from people like Chuck Person. And so do coaches, white coaches all over the country. They need people like Chuck Person to basically legitimize the connections that the head coach wants to create. Bruce Pearl has a nice shtick, and he's a people person, and he made a great color analyst for ESPN when he was serving his, essentially his suspension for uh, NCAA rules violations when he was at the University of Tennessee before he came to Auburn. But he needs some credibility too. He needs a credibility boost and he gets that instantaneously from Chuck Person. If Chuck Person says, yeah, this is a great place to be, this is a great coach to play for, and here's what we're going to do for you, that has enormous value in the talent acquisition market. Yet ironically, and I've talked about this uh, in my prior episodes in this NC State case, the line of accountability in this recruiting game, when things go south, when money starts moving and people get caught violating these NCAA rules, the uh, dispensability line 
kind of runs between the assistant coaches and these head coaches. So the assistant coaches get thrown under the bus. They get fired. The athletes whose names come up, independent of, of whether they can prove a case against these kids or even against the assistant coaches, the, the kids are declared immediately ineligible by the schools because they are incentivized to do that under the NCAA's penalty structure. And the quicker they come to heel to acknowledging the NCAA's authority and the quicker they, t- they take action on their own without being forced to by the NCAA, the more favorably the NCAA will review that case for the institution. In these basketball prosecutions, the federal prosecutor's curiosity seemed to evaporate once we got above the assistant coach level. There wasn't a single head coach who was prosecuted. And there were a couple who lost their jobs, Rick Pitino and Sean Miller. But you didn't have any head coaches facing criminal charges for participating in a violation of NCAA rules in the talent acquisition market. So these guys are sacrificial lambs. And again, all of them are black. And of the 12 schools that I'm going to list here that have been implicated in this bribery scandal and then are the subject of NCAA infractions and enforcement actions, 10 of the 12 of those head coaches are white. And that's just the, that's the way the world works. And I'm going to talk more about that at some point later on when I talk more specifically about the racial dynamics in big-time college sports. But that is just the way that this system operates, and the Chuck Persons of the world are dispensable. The bottom line in this Auburn case was that, was that the institution and Bruce Pearl as the head coach basically got a kiss on the cheek. Chuck Person was given a 10-year show cause order. I'm going to talk more about those, which basically, as a practical matter, means he's blackballed from coaching in college sports. His career is over. His college coaching career is over. But Bruce Pearl's keeping his $4 million a year salary at Auburn. And now he is in the discussions for the head coaching job at Maryland where they may pay him even more. So what kind of irony is that? That the, the person who really should be responsible for this in a captain of the ship view of leadership and accountability, he's skating while the people whose labors and talents and relationships and expertise he benefited from, they get thrown under the bus. They're gone. And Bruce Pearl can just pack his bags and go on to the next place, start all over again. That's just the way this business works. And if you have a coach like Pearl, who is very good at uh, skirting responsibility and also acquiring the best talent in the marketplace, he can build your program or rebuild your program in a very short period of time. And that's gold to university presidents and athletics directors and basketball programs and athletics departments. And that's why the Bruce Pearls of the world really are at some level protected. Bruce Pearl's like a made man in the business of the dirty business of big time college sports, you know, using or an organized crime analogy. There are made men in the college coaching world that no matter what they do, they are protected. I think that that is true with Bruce Pearl. And I think he was also a fortuitous beneficiary of timing because the NCAA right now has to be careful about bringing the hammer down on people who can fight back. And the the coaches and the universities can fight back. Chuck Person can't fight back. He doesn't have the resources. And he has uh, accepted responsibility. I think he looks back and thinks he made some mistakes. And that's just the kind of guy he is. And he loves Auburn and he loves the, the players and the players love him. And he's gone. He's gone. Bruce Pearl moves on. So in these criminal cases and then in the NCAA infractions and enforcement cases that followed, you had basically two different fact patterns. And I believe they've been treated differently by the NCAA. And you have these two categories of cases. So the first, and I would say the less serious in in the eyes of the NCAA, are these situations where an enrolled student athlete, and that's important here, an athlete who's already committed to a school, he has enrolled at the school, he is playing for the school, where that athlete becomes the target of interest by athlete agents and financial advisors who are trying to get a foot in the door with the best athletes who may have NBA potential 
to try to get those athletes to sign with them when they go pro. These agents and advisors sometimes use assistant coaches as the conduit to getting that commitment. So they'll pay the assistant coach money. Then the assistant coach is supposed to bring talent on that roster to the athlete, agent, or the financial advisor. And that's exactly the scenario that occurred at Auburn. It also uh, occurred at six other schools. And one of the things that I think people don't understand is that these basketball-related scandals resulted in NCAA infractions and enforcement actions, and seven of these 12 cases have already been resolved. And I'll just go real quickly through the schools and the the dates on which the cases were resolved, and then I'm going to talk about some of the common features among these cases. So you had uh, these seven schools that were embroiled in this first fact pattern that relates to enrolled athletes and people trying to steer them to a particular agent or financial advisor when they turn pro. So the first case that came out uh, was the Oklahoma State case, and that was June uh, 5th of 2020. And in that case, the athlete received uh, $300 from an assistant coach to try to commit to this this financial advisor. Then you had the same thing at Alabama, and the Committee on Infractions released that opinion on November 20th of 2020. Then you had the University of South Carolina getting embroiled in this, and the Committee on Infractions issued an opinion on January 25th of 2021. Next, we had the University of Southern California. Similar fact pattern. A public opinion came out from the Committee on Infractions on April 15th of 2021. Let's see. Next, is Creighton University. That's June 22nd of 2021. That opinion came out. Then we had Texas Christian University, TCU, got ensnared in this, and a public opinion came out on June 29th of 2021. And now we have the Auburn decision that came out just last Friday, December 10th of 2021. I have read all of these opinions, and they are dense. They are written by lawyers for lawyers, and they start deep in the weeds. If you don't understand this process, you haven't read the NCAA rules, you haven't studied some of these cases, and you read one of these opinions, it's hard to know really what they're talking about here and what the influences are and what the distinctions are and the similarities are and all that. So I have I've read all these opinions, and, and I've drawn some conclusions. I've synthesized a lot of these cases, and I've internalized some of the concepts that are in con- that all these cases share in common. And I'm going to talk about some of those common features here in just a second. But before I do that, I want to identify then the second category of cases, and those relate to I think five schools now, and the committee on infractions that issued these seven cases I just listed. That's the NCAA inside infractions and enforcement process, the old process. And then, as I discussed in the NC State series, you had the this basketball scandal giving rise to the Commission on College Basketball. The Commission on College Basketball made some important recommendations relating to the infractions and enforcement process. And one of its observations was that the old system is fraught with conflicts of interest, and it is. And so they recommended an entirely new independent process for high-stakes cases, and they envisioned the very cases that came out of this basketball scandal. Only five of the 12 cases that have been identified that we know about in the NCAA infractions and enforcement process have been referred to this independent accountability resolution process. We don't have a single decision yet. And I talked a lot about that in that NC State series. And the NC State case was the first one that went to a hearing, and that was in early August of 2021. And we we just don't have anything yet. So we don't know how those are going to be handled. But these first seven cases have kind of a cookie cutter feel to them. And when you look at the commonalities and the way that the these opinions are structured, it's really a fill in the blank, cut and paste exercise. And the range of penalties is very similar. The fact patterns are very similar. And the way that the NCAAs thought about those cases is very similar. I'll talk more about that in just a minute. But the second category of cases relates to a really a different fact pattern here. And I believe the NCAA views it as a more serious kind of transgression under its logic. And these athletes are still in high school, 
and we're talking about the recruitment, the talent acquisition market, not the professional market and steering these athletes to agents and financial advisors. We're talking about getting them in the door at a particular university. And the shoe companies are so important in that because they get involved at the grassroots basketball level. They sponsor teams. And there are Nike teams and Adidas teams and Under Armour teams. And the the pipeline runs through that youth grassroots program and into the colleges that are also sponsored by that shoe company. And that's exactly the case with NC State. And then the uh, other four in that group of five, you have, uh, let's see, NC State, you have Louisville, you have Arizona, you have LSU, you have Kansas. They're all Adidas schools and they are, they're benefiting from that pipeline. So the, the deal there is that you have these shoe company operatives out in the field and this really sketchy guy, TJ Gasnola, who in this, in one of these sets of cases, the Gatto case, the one I talked about with NC State, because NC State was brought into that. You have these operatives in the grassroots system being an interface between the shoe company and then the athletes and their families and their handlers to try to get those athletes to commit to a particular school. And the fact patterns can be confusing and convoluted, but the bottom line is that the money originates with the shoe company one way or another, and then it winds up in the hands of athletes who have not yet decided where they're going to go to college. And the quid pro quo is you pay these athletes and really it's their families. The athletes had very little to do with this. And that's one of the common features for all of these cases in both fact patterns. And that is that the athletes are just pawns here and they get forced into these transactions against their will. And then they immediately are declared ineligible when things go south. I mean, it's just insanity. But the money makes it to the athlete's parents or a handler for that athlete. And basically, you're purchasing recruits. And that, I think, in the eyes of the NCAA, is the ultimate sin and the ultimate crime against amateurism and the student-athlete and the collegiate model. And in the NCAA's construction of reality, I think they're looking at their penalty structure and saying this goes beyond mere unethical conduct by the assistant coaches or any of the people who are involved in these transactions that the NCAA has jurisdiction over. And it doesn't have jurisdiction over the athlete agents. It doesn't have jurisdiction over the shoe companies. It doesn't have jurisdiction over financial advisors. Those people are external to the NCAA and they can't directly regulate them. So in some ways, they bring the hammer down even harder on the people they can regulate to, as, as a deterrent, or at least they think it's a deterrent. Apparently, it's not. But in the way that the NCAA conceptualizes these cases and their penalty structures, this could go beyond unethical conduct and into a question of institutional control, which then you're talking about not only having some minor penalties and maybe being banned from postseason play. You could be looking at the death penalty where your program's just put out of business for a certain period of time. And that's the kind of rhetoric that we were hearing from the NCAA at the very beginning of these criminal cases when the charges were announced in September of 2017 and Mark Emmert's pounding his chest in his October statement and announcing the formation of the Commission on College Basketball and we've got to get rid of these bad actors and there's a code of silence and this, is, this isn't a time for tinkering, this is a time for transformative change, all the usual rhetoric. But the NCAA was leading people to believe that they were going to really bring the hammer down, yet not a single head coach has suffered any consequences and you you don't have any penalties beyond the the worst penalty so far has been the Oklahoma State postseason ban this year that's the most severe penalty and it is a severe penalty but nothing like the the death penalty so again we have this other fact pattern and we don't have a resolution of any of those cases so we don't know what this independent resolution panel is going to do with those. And again, this is not being handled by the old committee on infractions. These seven cases that I, that I identified first, those ran through the old committee on infractions. These five cases that relate to paying athletes to attend a certain college, or at least those are the allegations. None of those cases have been brought to an opinion yet. So l let me just talk about this first category of cases, these seven cases in this fact pattern that relates to enrolled athletes who are being pressured 
to, to sign with a particular financial advisor or agent when they go pro. And what, one of the things that is, is common in all these transactions, beyond the fact that all these involve African-American participants at the university level, the assistant coaches and all the athletes are African-American, you also have a very clear pattern of both athletes and their parents really re resisting getting brought into the transaction. So you, you have these assistant coaches that take money from the financial advisor and the quid pro quo is that they get to keep that money so long as they can bring players under their influence over to that financial advisor. And it's important to remember that in, in that transaction, the assistant coach has enormous influence and in many cases, the athletes that these assistant coaches were going to to try to steer them to the financial advisor were athletes that the assistant coach had personally recruited and may have had a personal relationship. And in the Auburn case, Chuck Person had a familial relationship with one of the athletes. And these athletes trust their coaches. And so if an assistant coach comes and says, look, come to my hotel room at 10 o'clock when they're, you know, a road game, they're staying at a hotel and come to my hotel room at 10 o'clock and, and the kid comes to the room. And instead of watching game film or talking about strategy, some financial guy appears and is making a pitch. The, the athlete didn't have any control over that. And the same thing happens with the, the athlete's parents. And those fact patterns occurred throughout these seven cases where they, these athletes and the parents were essentially ambushed by the assistant coach and the financial advisor. And that's really the most egregious part of this. That, that's the thing that I struggle with is the way that these assistant coaches pulled these kids in to try to show to the people who were paying them, the financial advisor, that yeah, they had to sway with these kids and these kids might do business with them. But when you listen to what the parents said and what the, stu what the athletes said, they're like, what, what the hell's going on here? When they're presented with this ambush, they don't know what to do. And again, because they're dealing with somebody that, that they view as a trustworthy person and a person who has influence over their son's career, it's a really awkward situation for these parents. And some of them wound up taking some money and some of the athletes wound up taking some money, but very, very small sums of money. As I mentioned in that Oklahoma State case, uh, an athlete took $300 and some of these payments to parents totaled two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000. Nothing that's going to completely be a game changer. I don't think enough to be a substantial influencing factor on whether or not their son actually chose this financial advisor. And a lot of these parents and these athletes are just struggling. It's a week-to-week, month-to-month financial struggle for them. And I think it's so easy for people who haven't lived that way week-to-week, month-to-month, paycheck-to-paycheck to look at this kind of transaction and just look down at that and say, why in the world would you put your college career and perhaps your professional career at risk for 300 bucks or 1500 bucks or 5,000 bucks? And I think that just is a window into the, the separation that exists because the people in, in, on the Committee on Infractions, they, most of them probably aren't living paycheck to paycheck. <laughs> Neither are the people at the NCAA National Office. And neither are the head coaches who are making millions and millions of dollars. But you have to really look at this through the lens of the, the most vulnerable people in this whole system. And those are the people who are providing the value in the system. And $300 is important. And $1,500 to the parents is important. And while the NCAA likes to place a lot of emphasis on the fact that the athlete or the parents took the money, what they don't put emphasis on and don't credit the athlete for or the parents is that a lot of those athletes and parents gave the money back. They get a, a folder of money shoved in their face at an ambush meeting and they put their hand on the envelope and all of a sudden they are the dukes and duchesses of darkness. But what they don't say, what they don't emphasize, what the media doesn't talk about is that in many situations, these athletes and parents said, I didn't want this money. I didn't ask for this money. And I needed the money, but I understood that when money moves, there's a problem. And they tried to push it back. And sometimes they actually did push it back. Sometimes it was essentially imposed on them. And at some point in the mind of somebody 
who actually needs that money, uh, it doesn't take a, a lot of internal deliberation to rationalize accepting that money. And that dynamic just simply isn't part of the NCAA narrative. The other thing that's really important here, and again, another thing that has gotten virtually zero attention, and that is in almost all of these fact patterns, the FBI was involved either before any money moved or shortly after any money moved. And the FBI is the empty chair here in, in many ways because it's my belief that a lot of these transactions were manufactured. They were forced through the cooperating witnesses. And in the Auburn case, you had a financial advisor who worked with athletes. His name's Marty Blazer. And he was in hot water in a completely unrelated case where he was looking at some jail time. And when his lawyers were trying to do a deal in this unrelated case, he mentioned, hey, yeah, I know a few things about uh, college basketball that you might be interested in. And some think that was really the genesis for this investigation by the FBI. We don't know. We'll probably never know for sure. But Blazer was a cooperating witness. He was the financial advisor who was providing the money to Chuck Person at Auburn in exchange for Person trying to steer a couple star athletes to, to Blazer for, for representation when they went pro. But you have to ask yourself, if Marty Blazer isn't in the discussion, if he's not in the transaction, if he's not connected to somebody that knows that Person is in financial difficulty, then does this, do these uh, transactions even occur? And I think that is a fair question, but nobody's asking that question. And some of the money, the actual money that made its way from Blazer to Person through an intermediary who knew Person, and Person had confided in him that he was having some financial difficulties. And then you have this guy who, has his, who is operating with the federal government's boot on his throat, and he's trying to avoid jail time. He's pressing these deals, and the money came from the FBI and ran through Blazer and then gets to person. So this isn't a situation where the assistant coaches were out actively soliciting these transactions. Many of these were the product of the FBI sting operation. And each of these seven cases had a very similar template for the penalty structure and the penalty structure is very complicated, and it reads like federal criminal sentencing guidelines, you know, the, the DOJ sentencing guidelines. But there are three levels, levels one, two, and three, with level one violations the most serious, level three the least serious. And a lot of these violations with these seven cases, they were deemed level one violations. And that was one of the disputes in the instances where the universities actually challenged what the NCAA was doing. They're saying, you've classified this incorrectly. This isn't a level one violation. And the reason you don't want uh, to be under the level one umbrella is that that's when you start to see penalties that have real consequence. So I want to go through the penalty options. It's kind of like a menu, the way that the NCAA looks at this. And there are a variety of factors. And one of the primary factors is the extent to which these universities immediately take action once they are in the crosshairs of an NCAA investigation or some alleged misconduct, how quickly they take action that makes it look like they are supplicating to the NCAA's authority and they are doing the, the uh, NCAA mea culpa dance before a single piece of evidence has been introduced. And that's really unfortunate because that's when these assistant coaches get immediately fired. That's when these athletes are immediately declared ineligible. And in, in many cases, that is done for the sole purpose of currying favor with the NCAA infractions and enforcement staff. So in each of these seven cases, and again, the template's very, very similar, the penalty structure virtually identical, and the penalty menu that the NCAA was operating from had really six components. Number one was probation, and that is a time-specific penalty that lasts a couple or three years. And part of uh, probation can include a reduction in scholarships, and so maybe a school will lose a scholarship or two for the probationary period. It can also include a curtailment of recruiting opportunities. So 
the staff might not be able to recruit during certain times or through certain methods while the probation is in effect. Then in conjunction with that, there's often a nominal financial penalty, normally between 1% and 5% of the sports program's budget. So in this case, it's basketball. And so the uh, school has to pay a 1% to 5% penalty. And I don't think that's a, a huge thing. And then we have two other potential penalties, both of which are much more serious. So we had the probation, scholarships, recruiting, financial penalties. Now we're looking at postseason bans, and that's what happened in this Oklahoma State case. And in basketball in particular, not being eligible for the postseason tournaments, namely the March Madness tournament, that's a huge problem because that's what these kids play for. And it also has potentially severe financial and branding opportunity consequences for the institution if they can't take advantage of wins in the March Madness tournament. There's a complicated formula for how you get paid, and it's based on how many games you win in the tournament, and it's a kind of a rolling payout. So if you win a few games in the tournament, you get money that continues for a number of years, and that's a very nice thing to have. But equally important is the to have your team being marketed at the national level and promoted at the national level and being spoken about very favorably at the national level through this tournament. And the deeper you go, the more focused that attention is and the more valuable it is to your branding and marketing. All that's gone. And Oklahoma State can't go to the tournament this year, and it looks like they have a pretty good team. If this team stays on track, it looks like it's a team that would make the NCAA tournament and perhaps be an upper-level seed. So that's huge for them this year. Auburn skated on that, and Bruce Pearl did a smart thing, and Auburn did a smart thing. They did a self-imposed postseason ban when they uh, were getting nailed and the news of person's involvement came out. They immediately fired person, and then they uh, did all these self-imposed penalties, and one of them was a postseason ban, but that meant nothing to Auburn at the time because the, the, their team that year, and this was the last year when this this tournament that was really one of the worst NCAA tournaments in college sports history, despite a, a decent final game. But it was just a train wreck from start to finish, from the selection process on through. And the NCAA was going to play that tournament come hell or high water because they needed that postseason payoff and they needed that billion-dollar payoff. But Auburn wasn't super good last year, and they weren't going to make the NCAA tournament. They weren't going to make the NIT tournament. Their postseason was going to end with the SEC conference tournament. So a postseason ban really was inconsequential to Auburn, and I don't think anybody was paying attention. And because the field was so random and so weak, Auburn's inclusion or exclusion wasn't a big story. It wasn't a big deal. So they really got by with that. And the NCAA accepted that self-imposed penalty. They said, yeah, okay, that's great. We're going to give you credit for that. You did the right thing. And boy, we, we think you're on board with, with the mea culpa dance. Which brings me to the last penalty, and that is the issuance of what are called show cause orders. And these are a special kind of penalty that applies to individuals, not to institutions. So if uh, a coach, head coach, an assistant coach, an athletics administrator gets embroiled in an NCAA investigation and they are found to have violated NCAA rules, and if it's a level one violation, then there's very likely to be a show cause order. And under the show cause order, these coaches are pro are prohibited for a certain period of time, and the show cause orders can range from one year to 10 years. And they impose restrictions on what you could do as a coach, and they basically put any school that might hire you on notice that you're going to really find yourself in trouble if you hire this guy. These, this penalty was designed to essentially end a coach's career, and that has been the practical impact of these, particularly for the head coaches. And the reason that's so important here is that Chuck Person got a 10-year show-cause order in this Auburn case. That ended his career. And I think that the criminal case standing alone would not have ended person's career. And the way that the judge handled sentencing, she was basically saying, this guy got screwed and I'm not going to participate 
in this kabuki theater that the FBI, the Justice Department, and the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York have imposed on the system. This is a good guy, made a little mistake, and we're going to move on. And I think that would have been the case for Chuck Person. But this 10-year show cause order, in many ways, is a far more significant punishment than, than what the the criminal court issue. So under this show cause order, Chuck Person is virtually unemployable because one of his primary assets uh, are these relationships that he has and the goodwill that he had built up through those relationships and through his uh, notoriety as a player and through his generosity in the Alabama community. And that value is gone if he's not allowed to recruit. You can, yeah, you can put him on your staff, but he can't do anything. So that essentially makes him unemployable. And the head coaches who have been subject of these show cause orders have likewise been unemployable until Bruce Pearl. So what makes this case so interesting to me, and this didn't get a lot of media coverage, is that when Bruce Pearl was at the University of Tennessee, and he was there before he came to Auburn, he was hired by Auburn in 2014. And in an interesting, ironic twist, Chuck Person was a finalist along with Bruce Pearl for the head coaching job at Auburn. They gave it to Pearl, and then Pearl did a really smart thing, and he immediately hired Person because Person (laughs) was going to be a candidate somewhere else. And I think that he got a nice deal at Auburn, and he wanted to be at Auburn. He loves Auburn. And he bleeds orange, and he he wanted to stay in Alabama, and it was a great hire for for Bruce Pearl. But when Bruce Pearl was hired by Auburn in March of 2014, he still had five months left on a show cause order that he got slapped with when he was at Tennessee before he came to Auburn. And in 2011, it uh, came to light that Pearl had hosted at his house some kind of a dinner where some people, some athletes showed up who weren't supposed to be there. I don't know if they were prospective recruits. I'm like, I don't remember what the fact pattern was. It didn't sound like a big deal to me. It sounded kind of Mickey Mouse. But the problem was that Pearl lied about it to the NCAA and the NCAA came down hard on him, hired him because part of the show cause order was that Pearl couldn't recruit. And again, that's his thing. He's Mr. Recruiter and he's a charismatic guy and he knows how to work a room, and he reminds me a lot of Jimmy Valvano in, in that regard, in terms of the power of their personality and their presence and all that stuff. And Pearl is a persuasive guy, but he, he didn't have much value if he couldn't recruit. And so he was serving this show cause order, and during that time, he's working for ESPN as a color analyst. And I don't think there's much question, but that that relationship with ESPN and the branding and imaging and the makeover of Bruce Pearl made him an attractive candidate again. But the prior head coaches who had been given show cause orders, I don't think ever were employed again. I think this might have been a precedent-setting hire by Auburn when they hired a head coach who was actually under a show cause order at the time. And that's an extraordinarily risky move. And the fact that in this in this most recent case, this Auburn case, the, the decision that came out last week, that really wasn't the focus of the NCAA's analysis or the way that they approached the penalty structure. You would have thought, given the NCAA's history and its use of show cause orders to make these coaches unemployable, that this would have been the perfect case for the NCAA to say, we are giving this coach the death penalty. We're going to put together a show cause order that is airtight and no school is going to hire this guy because he made a mockery of this show cause order. And he came in and he begged for a second chance and he said all the right things, but that doesn't matter. We're looking at his actions, not his words. And this would, again, would would have been the, the perfect time for the NCAA to make a statement. And instead, it caved. It caved. And it's also very likely that, that Pearl has his own lawyer. A lot of these coaches, again, they have access to the kind of legal representation that somebody like Chuck Person doesn't, or any of these other lower profile assistant coaches who got thrown under the bus in these other cases. But these head coaches have some powerful people that they can turn to if they need some help. And Pearl, I think, has this lawyer. I can't remember his name, but there's no question in my mind that lawyers probably communicating with the NCAA's lawyers. And they're saying, if you make this guy unemployable, we're going to sue you and it's going to get ugly. And 
I think that same lawyer is representing Will Wade at LSU and I think Sean Miller, who was at Arizona. So you have to factor that in too. So there are a lot of considerations here. But in that sense, I think this might be a precedent-setting case, which has implications going forward in terms of these show cause orders and how seriously they are taken. And I think that the people who were paying attention, there were a couple of sports writers who mentioned the fact that Pearl was under a show cause order when he was hired by Auburn and the fact that what happened in this Auburn decision last week makes no sense at all. It makes a mockery of the NCAA's claims to want to go after all the bad actors because they view Bruce Pearl as a bad actor. And that's not an unreasonable view. When you look at his track record, again, through the lens and logic of the NCAA and its amateurism-based compensation limits and the way that it regulates the labor force. But if you're playing by those rules and everybody has agreed to play by those rules, then this decision makes no sense at all. And it really shines a light on this protective line that's drawn between the head coaches and then the people below them. That's where the, the, the line of accountability stops. It's important to note that Bruce Pearl's conduct was treated under the level one analysis, meaning the most egregious type of NCAA violations. And there's not a strict liability provision that says that the head coach is responsible for what his other coaches and subordinates do in the program. They, and the NCAA has to establish that Pearl didn't meet the oversight standards that applied to him as a head coach. And they went through this long analysis and they said, boy, it's really a close call and it's really tough to make a decision here on that. But we think that the weight of the evidence suggests that Pearl actually did cross that line, and we believe that he did fail to, uh, pro- to properly supervise, so he was treated as a level one offender. And all, given Pearl's sketchy history with the NCAA, the finding that he engaged in a level one violation should have resulted in some type of show cause order, and it didn't. Instead, Chuck Person, who had no history of NCAA violations, and I believe had some decent mitigating circumstances, he gets the book thrown at him, and he's done. He, he's not going to appear on ESPN. He doesn't get to go to ESPN and spend the next nine or ten years doing color commentary there or, or for CBS. He doesn't get the Bruce Pearl red carpet treatment when he's uh, basically been blackballed by the NCAA. His career is over. But this line that's drawn between the assistant coaches and the other people in the athletics department and the head coaches, I think that you also need to think about how it would play out if the prosecutors in New York or the NCAA had pointed the finger at the head coaches. And these head coaches were brought in, subpoenaed to testify or named as defendants in these criminal cases. What does that look like? And what are they going to say? Are they going to implicate the entire system? Are they going to implicate the entire university decision-making system? And that could get ugly if a coach is looking at 40, 50, 60 years in jail. And these wire fraud charges carried substantial prison sentences. So who knows how that would have played out. But I think in this overall amerta that protects the made people in this corrupt business model and big-time college sports, they don't want to be in a position where they're turning on each other. Because if that happens, I mean, whoa, boy, that would be quite a show. But something that doesn't get the appropriate attention, in my view, is the way that the NCAA approaches its mitigating factors. And the primary mitigating factor that the NCAA looks to when it is processing an infractions case comes from uh, bylaw 19, and it's uh, 19.9.4 sub B, and it is prompt acknowledgement for the violations, acceptance of responsibility, and imposition of meaningful corrective measures and or penalties. And that is so, so important because what these schools do, the minute that they are implicated 
in any kind of potential NCAA rules violation, the very first thing they do at the institutional level, these decisions are made at high levels of administrators, both in the athletics department and with the knowledge and blessing of people outside of the athletics department. And that is to prove to the NCAA to get on your knees and to become the supplicant, NCAA's power and authority. And you have to pay that fealty. You have to do it immediately. And the simplest way to do that is to throw under the bus the most vulnerable and dispensable people in the system. And those, in almost all cases, are low-level administrators or assistant coaches, and more importantly, the athletes themselves. And they do that by firing low-level employees and then immediately suspending the athletes to making them essentially ineligible until the infractions and enforcement process plays out. And that is just an unconscionable consequence for the people in the system who are actually providing the value in it. And Chuck Person is out there doing Bruce Pearl's dirty work and helping Bruce Pearl get filthy rich and marketable in the coaching circles at the highest levels of Division I men's basketball. But when something goes wrong, Chuck Person is the first one thrown under the bus and right behind him go the athletes who wanted nothing to do with these interactions and these transactions. They were forced into this. They were ambushed into this. And sitting behind the whole sad scenario is the Federal Bureau of Investigation and a self-righteous Justice Department and an FBI informant who was cooperating because he faced decades of jail time in a completely unrelated case. Those are the circumstances under which Chuck Person and these athletes got thrown under the bus by their own people. And that's the way that the system is set up to operate. And that mitigating factor is so powerful, and the NCAA places such a priority on it, because that is the come to the NCAA Jesus mitigating factor. You fall on your knees and you submit. And once you do that and you do it publicly, then we will treat you uh, fairly, at least by our standards. That's the way this crooked process operates. And uh, that ties into another important point, and, th and that is this notion that the universities could have been victims in this scenario. And you know, that's a real difficult theory to swallow. And I, I talked about that at some length in the NC State episodes. And I also talked about it a bit in a, a blog post that I wrote. And I think I'll link to that in the show notes for this episode. And in that Gatto case that I analyzed, Judge Kaplan, he drilled down on the victim university theory. It's capital V, capital U. And he said, no, these schools were the real victims here, and they wouldn't have given this scholarship if they had known that this athlete was ineligible, and they subjected themselves to the potential risk of having the NCAA come after them. And these kids and, these, and their parents signed these certifications that said that they hadn't broken any NCAA rules and blah, blah, blah. But how far up the chain of command do you have to go before that victim becomes the perpetrator? And I think that's the question that a lot of people were asking. I mentioned this in my NC State series, that after this Austin case, the entire justification for the NCAA's infractions and enforcement is amateurism, an amateurism-based compensation limit. And Judge Kaplan, in articulating his victim university theory, he admitted that at the root of the entire criminal case was the theory of amateurism, the principle of amateurism, even though he prevented the defendants from putting the NCAA on trial. I think that was a big mistake. It's, just, it's a part of this appeal that is now in the Supreme Court. And I guess I should also mention, because this happened also last Friday on December 10th, that case was sent in the U.S. Supreme Court to the justices for conferencing. So they're very soon going to decide whether they're going to take that case. And I'm going to wait to see what happens before I talk more about it. But if, as Kaplan reasoned, that amateurism is the linchpin of this whole thing, you have to ask yourself if this corruption were exposed after this unanimous Supreme Court ruling in Austin, which dealt a substantial body blow to the principle of amateurism, would 
any federal prosecutor have pursued these cases? And I think the answer to that is no. And I think that's also one reason why this decision is fundamentally different in its tone from the prior decisions. And it tries to use a very soft touch. And the bad actor black hat tool in its toolkit is no longer a sledgehammer. It's a chisel. But it didn't change the ultimate outcome for Chuck Person. Chuck Person's still unemployable. One of the potential silver linings for people like Chuck Person, because there were a number of other really high quality assistant coaches who had their careers ended in, in this, in these NCAA cases, these seven cases. And maybe because Pearl got a free pass under his old show cause order, maybe schools will take a new look at people like Chuck Person or, or Tony Bland, who was an up-and-comer at USC, Southern California. And do they deserve a second chance? Bruce Pearl begged for a second chance. He got it. And now he's getting a third chance. Don't these assistant coaches at least deserve that same opportunity? I, I hope so. I hope so. We'll see. But it's really interesting to see what the NCAA infractions and enforcement folks are doing right now. And this Auburn case really, really was a, was a head scratcher. And it was much, much different. And we'll see. I think it's going to be real interesting to pay attention to what's happening with these cases that are in the independent accountability resolution process and whether there's any suggestion that there's going to be a decision that comes out before this transformative makeover of the infractions and enforcement process through the, the work of the Constitution Committee. So anyway, we're going to keep an eye on all that. But I wanted to get that episode in because I just thought it was really, really interesting what happened with this Auburn case. And I think that the infractions and enforcement component of this constitutional makeover is among its most important consequences. And this, I think, provides some insight, perhaps, into what the national office is thinking right now. All right. So with that, I'm going to close this episode out. I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.